Those are some good words we said this morning. Did you ever get caught unaware in a situation like that? Did you ever get caught unaware where, you're, where you find yourself saying words and you think, like, what am I saying? These are good words from the inside out. God be praised. Let's start by praying this morning. Father God, uh, sometimes we, we say words and we don't know what they mean and we, uh, we profess things we don't understand. And uh, Father, today, pray that our tongues would be loosed, that uh, the, 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 the creation of who we are, the expression of, of the God of all creation, the praise to Yahweh, the one who breathed into us, Lord, would be released from our souls. Lord, I pray that uh, you would have this time as yours, that you would have us as your children, that your Holy Spirit would be among us. Pray, Lord, today that if we are reluctant with our tongues today to praise you, that your spirit would overcome that reluctance. If we were reluctant in our hearts to let you control us, that we would open our hearts and let you control us. Father God, all praise and glory is owed to you. And today, Lord, by your power, we pray that our tongues would be loosed to proclaim our creator. We give you glory and honor forever. Amen. I want to back up a little bit. This, uh, we're, it's like kind of dark in here today. And then I'm going to come up here. Someone's telling me it's really dark. Maybe not that far. Um, we're going to back up a little bit in Nehemiah, but we're going to go ahead and turn right to Nehemiah today and get started because I want to, I want to uh, just you know, roll in here, but I want you to be able to keep up with this. So uh, there you go, Nehemiah, page 336, and the Bible's on the seats. Um, and we're actually going to back up a little bit into one, just the very, very tail end of it, <coughs> excuse me, because I wanted to, to touch on this thing. Nehemiah is this guy that we talked about last week who is, um, who's right there with the king, and he inquires about, uh, we don't know that yet, but he inquires about the state of Jerusalem. And as we remember from last week, his heart breaks when he hears the story of Jerusalem. His heart's just crushed by the situation that Jerusalem has found herself in. And he begins to pray to God, and we heard those prayers. But the last thing, and I, I said this last week, the last thing he says in here, and I absolutely love the way it's like a footnote. By the way, and it's right there in verse uh, 11 of chapter 1, I was cupbearer to the king. And we talked a little about what that means to be cupbearer to the king. But, and we kind of talked about the idea of being a, uh, what is it, a, a little bird, a canary in the mines, right? They had the canaries there. And if they would drop dead, you know to get out because their life is less valuable than yours. And we always kind of see the cupbearer, maybe it's that guy who has to take the sip of the poison and die before the king so the king can drink and have a good time. Uh, but the truth of the situation seems to be more that this guy was really trusted. He was expendable for sure, and he was not there um, free per se. Uh, he was under the, um, what would you say, the leadership of the king. He had, he had to do what the king said no matter what. But he was highly, highly valuable. He was highly, highly trusted. He wasn't just some guy who was expendable. It wasn't like every week you had a new cupbearer. This guy was with you for a long time, and you trust him with your life. And so there was this kind of intimate relationship uh, with him. And I wanted to ask you, as we, we kind of talked about Nehemiah last week, but I don't know who you see yourself as in the story. I hope you start to ask that question, who am I in the story? Are you Nehemiah? Are you the one who's heartbroken? Are you the brother from Jerusalem who rolls in and just when Nehemiah asks, goes, well, you know, it's kind of bad back there, but doesn't seem to be all that concerned about it. Are you King Artaxerxes who sits on his throne 
and is oblivious to the things happening around him. I don't know. I think most of the time with this text, we'll read it as we're Nehemiah because it's written in the first person. So Nehemiah writes this to us and we hear it that way. And we kind of see, yeah, we're like, we're Nehemiah. We're Nehemiah. But you see, there's, there's an interesting thing there with being a cupbearer to the king because Nehemiah might think that he has a tendency to say, well, who am I, right? Who am I? I'm a cupbearer to the king. But he knows that his position has uh, responsibility or has, has opportunity maybe is a better word for it. I wonder in your own life, when you see something that breaks your heart, if you truly believe that you are someone who is trusted by the king. We always hear that old, old little me stuff, you know? Oh, it's, it's only me. What can I do, right? And last we talked about trusting, trusting like Nehemiah does, that God has you right where you are. He sees whenever he hears the story of Jerusalem, he gets this heart-sick, God-given burden, right, for Jerusalem. And then he realizes, I'm cupbearer to the king. This is the story of Nehemiah. But let's not miss that we have that uh, opportunity ourselves to make change. One of the things that's interesting to me, I heard this story one time. You know, we talk about how to do ministry effectively, how to, how to reach out to those who are less privileged, how to help those. And I'm reminded of this story I heard one time um, where, and I can't remember exactly, so I'm going to try to try to kind of paraphrase it a little bit. But someone who spends their whole life following Christ on earth, and, and uh, they, well, since they meet Christ, they not their whole life. You know, they have that moment. But then they start to follow Jesus, and they start to be in these weird places, and they start to see these really awful things, and they start to get these gut-sick feelings about what's going on. They don't understand. They don't seem how they can help. They just seem so, so unable to make any change. You know, we preach a gospel that Jesus Christ has come so you may have life and have it abundantly, and then we find ourselves sitting next to people who are completely broken, and sometimes we don't have words to say. And this was the experience of this person. And they, they spent their life that way. They were there. They prayed. They followed. But in the end, they saw no change. No change. And they died. And after their short life was over, they got to meet God. And they went up to God and they said, God, what are you doing? And God's like, well, what do you mean? Well, do you know what's going on down there? Do you have any idea what's happening? I have some idea what's happening. Why? What do you? Man, I, my whole life I was following you and I was praying to you. And, and you wouldn't believe what's going on down there, Lord. There's these people that they, they can't, don't have enough food to eat. They're starving to death. I sat and held babies as they died. It makes no sense. Why is that happening? And God just listened. You don't, you don't seem to understand what's going on. You know, someone should do something about it. Someone, couldn't you send someone down there? Send someone to be next to them. Send someone to suffer with them. What, what's going on? I feel like you're not, you weren't even paying attention. I cried out, God, do something. God, do something. But nothing happened. And God listened. I just really don't understand, Lord. Why couldn't you send someone to be with these people, to help them, to live with them, to love them, to tell them that you love them. And after enough of the questioning and the brokenness, the person standing before God, and God said, well, I did. I sent you. 
See, we know Jesus came for us. But in our lives, sometimes when you're in that spot, that broken spot, that place where you don't have words to say, where you can't imagine how God is missing this injustice, God might be sending you right there. And I'm not going to say to you today, it's going to be a great, wow, you're going to change the world. What I'm saying to you is God has you where you are. And that's the lesson we learned from Nehemiah last week. He was cupbearer to the king, but he had some realization that in his heartbreak, he was exactly where God wanted him to be. We're going to go ahead and we're going to read through, uh, through chapter 2 of Nehemiah a little bit here. So if you want to follow along. It says, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Remember, he's the cupbearer to the king. And I had not been sad in his presence before, Nehemiah says. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to God, the God of heaven, and I answered the king, if it pleases the king, your servant has found favor in his sight. Let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Now you see, Nehemiah here has been hanging around the king with this burden for Jerusalem, and the king sees it, sees it in his face. And so uh, he asks him, why are you so sad? You've never been sad for me before. And he says, first thing, he honors the king, right? He says, he says, he says may, you, may you live forever, king. He was afraid, and legitimately afraid for his life. To, to kind of put himself, it's again, like the story of Esther, really risking something for someone else. And, and Nehemiah is doing it. He has a nice situation here with the king. Good favor. But he says, may you live forever. Why shouldn't my face look downcast when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins? And I love how he responds in verse 4. The king said, what is it you want? And then he says this. He says, I prayed to the God of heaven answered. And there's very much a feeling, and I hope you feel a dynamic in the text there, that in the moment, Nehemiah had been, you know, thinking about this time, being sad for Jer Jerusalem, being broken for Jerusalem. He's before the king. He gets asked the question of questions. What is it you want, Nehemiah? What can I do to make you not sad? I was talking to Matt about this this week, you know. It would be a kind of a bad deal if you're in front of the king and you're being sad all the time, right? Like, what a bummer, you know? Uh, and here he was, and he's being sad. And so the king has himself kind of interest in this, to say, what do you want? What can I do for you? But Nehemiah, again, just like in the first book we read, when he's heartbroken, he turns to God. In the moment of question, in that very instant, he says, I pray to God. Steve Hampson and I were talking about this as we were starting the series, and he loves the contradiction of, if you look back in verse uh, 5 of chapter 1, there's that huge, beautiful prayer we talked about where, where Nehemiah humbles himself before God, confesses his sins, remembers, intercedes on behalf of Israel, and then says, I will wait for you to bring a resolution to this, Lord. This beautiful prayer that could be a psalm is there in chapter 1. And here's Nehemiah in chapter 2, and he just happens to mention, almost, you know, passing, then I pray to the God of heaven. 
and I answered. And I wonder how often do we live our lives that holistically? You see, the truth about Nehemiah is Nehemiah, and this is a buzzword today, and I understand that, but Nehemiah was in a living, active relationship with the living God of creation, the God of heaven, you see. Because not only does he say these grand prayers in the morning before he goes off for his day, but all throughout his day, when he sees an opportunity, when he's confronted with a situation, he says a quick prayer. Do you ever do that? Have you done that? Do you know what's possible? We talked last week about having a two-way conversation, a three-way conversation a little bit, you know. When you engage with God today, that's what we pray you're here to do. But we're doing the same thing. And then when we talk to each other, it becomes this kind of three-way talk, right? Have you ever done that in a real active conversation? I pray you have. Or I pray at least you would try. Even as you're engaging with someone, right in the moment, whisper a prayer to God. Oh, God, help me. God of heaven, help me. God, be with me right now. God, I can't do this. I can't answer this question. I don't know what this, this, this person's hurting. This person's, you know, angry. This person's, oh, oh, Lord. You ever get called to the boss's office? That's a good time to pray. <laughs> you know, you called in the hot seat, you know, and, and maybe you're even guilty of doing something wrong, but you can still pray and say, oh, oh, Lord, you know. That's actually the way most of our prayers go, I'm afraid. Most of them are crisis prayers, right? What, what about when you're in a fight with your wife? That's a good time to pray. Uh, so when you're about to wring your kids' necks in the backseat of the van, that's a good time to pray. By the way, Chris and I, uh, I wanted to invent this thing called the parent barrier. It's like a taxi cab window thing that you could put in minivans because then they'd be perfect. <laughs> you know, <laughs> buzz through. Yes. But those moments, that, 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 that barrier can be like your prayer life right there. Man, you're going, the kids are on your nerves, and you just go, oh, God. And then you can have that little moment with God, that little moment of victory with yourself. I just didn't wring their necks. That was good. Thank you. You know? <laughs> Nehemiah is constantly engaging in this conversation with God. And when he gets before the king and he's sat in his presence, he absolutely turns back to the living God and says, God, give me success. And then he answers the king. And he says, if it pleases the king and if your servants have found favor in his sight, if your servant has found favor in his, in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my fathers are buried so that I might rebuild it. Now see, this is a big deal. Nehemiah is asking not only just to go to Jerusalem and rebuild this temple, but to leave the king. And this is his right-hand man. This is the guy who really trusts. It's kind of a big deal. And he says, hey, how about this? Can I do this? And um, we're going to mention this here in a second. He says, uh, in verse 6, look at this. It says, Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me. Now, it's interesting that he mentions that there's a queen sitting next to the king at that point, right? And I don't know if this is, if this is one continuous conversation or if this is a, a, almost like a narrative break to say, now the king was next to him at this point, or the queen was next to him at this point. But I thought, you know, it was a little tie in there with uh, Mother's Day. The queen was sitting right there beside him, blessing, condoning what he's doing. By the way, interesting, too, with, with Artaxerxes, uh, Artaxerxes and Xerxes, and some of the confusion with timelines on this, on this scripture, Nehemiah, Ezra, uh, Ezra and uh, Esther, it's really interesting who that queen may have been, but there's no, there's no uh, way to know. But the queen was sitting there beside him, and the king asked, how long will your journey take, and when will you get back? So he's kind of thinking about it, right? And it pleased the king to see him, send me, Nehemiah says, so I set a time to return. You see, he said, well, I, I can be back and he gave him a date. Let's read on. Then, 
in verse 7, I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, a keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me the timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for city wall, the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And he says, and because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. Now I want to say something here that's interesting about Nehemiah. Nehemiah had a plan. And you might think, like, how did Nehemiah think that fast on the fly, right? Because we just learned up here, he's brokenhearted, and he's, uh, he's standing before the king. He says, I'm cupbearer to the king. And then he says, I was sad in his presence. And all of a sudden, Nehemiah has this plan, right? And he gives him, like, a shopping list, like the Home Depot list. This is what I need. And would you do this stuff for me? He has an answer when the king asks. Because it wasn't what it seems in the text. You see, it seems like when we read it, this is like bang, 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 right? And we read this text of Nehemiah, we can get aggravated with ourselves. Say, oh, why, why, can't, man, why can't everything fall into place like that for me? Why can't, what's going on with that? See, the, the secret here is that Nehemiah was waiting upon God. Look back in verse 11 of chapter 1. It says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name, give your servant success today, and we talked about that word today, by granting him favor in the presence of this man. That today meant at this time. Look back in verse 1. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, Nehemiah starts to tell the story about his brother coming to him. Kislev is, um, it's, the, it's um, oh, now I'm going to mess it up, March. Right? I didn't write it in my notes. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> but, it's, but basically, I can tell you this, and if you check this, you'll, it'll be right. It means, it means in his confidence is the month of Kislev, is what the name means. And when he first came to him, his confidence, he, he, he's, he's here with his brother. Now look ahead in verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year. Look at that. In the 20th year, it's the same year. It's a different month in the same year. This is four months later. Chapter 2 happens four months after chapter 1. So we have this reading of the text where we were like, man, Nehemiah gets what he wants right away. No, he doesn't. You see, when he prayed to wait for God, he meant it. Give your servant success at this time. And then he waited. And this is a secret to his plan. Because Nehemiah didn't have to go right from his brother to right before the king and be broken in front of him and then have this happen. He had four months that God gave him to prepare. And that's kind of one of the questions that I have today. If God's laid a burden on your heart, by the way, if you'll look in your, uh, in your uh, bulletins today, there's a spot there that says, my, my God-given burden. I want you to think about that. What has God burdened you with? What has God revealed to you? What has he given you eyes to see? Because when God gave Nehemiah this burden, it wasn't like he instantly had to react to it. It wasn't like this necessary, I'm sure he was heartbroken from the moment he heard about it, but God had time, Right? And he gave Nehemiah four months to get ready to answer this question. Four months. Until he's before the king. One of the things that always strikes me, talking of burdens, is especially in church life, maybe this happens, what happens at work and everywhere else, right? You ever have that guy who comes up to you, that lady comes up to you and says, you know what somebody ought to do around here? 
Did you ever say that? Man, you know what drives me crazy? You know what somebody should do? You know, somebody, somebody, somebody in charge around here needs to fill in the blank. Those are the kind of burdens that I'm talking about. Whenever I'm engaging with people, and Chris and I have talked about this before, but I call it the you smelt it, you dealt it principle. <laughs> Which is kind of backwards. But it, but it, makes, it kind of makes sense that, that if you see it, it's kind of your responsibility. This is what we hear of Luke and the Good Samaritan story, and from Luke and the Good Samaritan story. When the Samaritan sees it, it's his responsibility. See, that's something that, that's something that when you see it, all of a sudden you have some responsibility to act. So the next time you find yourself going to somebody and saying, you know, someone ought to, I want, I want to warn you because those words might be getting you into a new opportunity. Okay? So just be ready for that. And then I also want to encourage you that you can take this time in between. Nehemiah had four months to make a plan. Four months. Sometimes we act like we have to have things right now. Right now, Lord, we need a solution for this. Right now. We can't wait. Well, God has time. That's the message, right? God has time. God's doing his work. God has time. And so we're before God. We're preparing and we're planning. And we don't know if God's ever going to use our little plans. That's what we did here today. The little scrawlings on a notepad, the little scrawlings in the napkins, you know, that's what's that. This, these little things that you go, God gives you this burden, and you're writing these notes, and you're like, ah, oh, you're all pent up about it. That's okay. Keep planning. God might use that. I'm reminded one time, whenever I was um, fairly young in the faith and, and uh, sensing this call into ministry, and I was uh, really bent up. And, and I just got to one of these divine phone calls, if you ever got those. And it was from uh, a pastor friend of mine. And he, he, he's on the phone with me. And, I, and I, he's, how you doing, man? I, I'm, you know. And I, and I said, oh, I got to tell you, I just don't understand what God's doing on this deal. I, you know, I've been, I've been praying about this. I've been waiting for this. I've been, gosh, what's going on? I don't understand. And, and nothing's happening. And uh, he, he said, can I give you a little, little, little advice, a little story? I said, sure. And he said, Jesus was a carpenter for 30 years. Okay, great. Jesus' ministry was three years long. Okay. Think you're more important than Jesus? And I said, well, no, 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 no. But you don't, no, you don't understand. God has time. This is time to prepare, time to make a plan. Be ready to go. And this is what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah is ready to go. We see the same thing whenever Jesus comes to this place in his life where he, his ministry starts with his baptism. And uh, I just, you know, you just don't know. Why, why 30 years old? Why wasn't he doing this stuff from the minute he was born? Why wasn't it revealed? But this is where we live, and this is the God we follow. And let's not get ahead of the Lord. So here we go. And so he says in verse 8, And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, and this is, again, a sign of a relationship with the living God, even whenever the king does something for him, he asks the king a question, the king does something for him, Nehemiah attributes it not to the king, but to the Lord. Yes? We did great stuff yesterday. That was awesome, right? Who gets glory? God gets glory for that, not us. God put that on our hearts. God let, laid that out for us to do. Praise God for that. And so Nehemiah says, I went to the governors of trans-Euphrates and gave them 
uh, the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. Now watch what happens. When Sanballat the Hornonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Now you would think, who cares about the Israelites? But these two guys, we're going to hear more about them later, already when they hear that Nehemiah even cares about them, there's a problem. And uh, I think that that's something telling, that the moment you set out, the moment you start to respond to the living God, the moment you start to get a vision for what God would have you to do, you might have those in your life who are disturbed immediately for what you're about to undertake. And I almost think we're better at this than most. I think the church is almost better at this than most, you know? And uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. So let's read on in verse 11. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. So he's going to Jerusalem now. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do in Jerusalem. Let's read that again. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on, and by night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate. That's a popular one right there, right? And examined the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward, uh, toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through there, and so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. And finally I turned back and reentered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because, I had, I as, yet, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or to the priests, or to the nobles, or to the officials, or to any others who would be doing the work. So here goes Nehemiah. He gets to Jerusalem, right? And he wants to go assess the problem. It's crazy. He has a plan for the king before he even sees the wall. He's heard the report. The walls are down. The gates are burned. And so he says, what I'm going to need is the rite of passage and some wood to rebuild the wall and the gates. And then he goes there, and he gets there. And look what it says. It says, after staying three days, so he gets there and he kind of chills out for a little bit. He hangs out, you know. You can almost see him as like a secret agent or something. He's kind of, he's, he's, he's there where he's supposed to be. He didn't tell anyone what God had put on his heart to do. And then he went out by night. In verse 13, look at that. By night, I went out through the valley gate. And so it just, this, it just seems a little weird, doesn't it? He shows up there. He knows the hand of God is upon him and upon his work. But the way he does it is he settles in, kind of acclimates for three days, then grabs a few men and one horse at nighttime and says, I want to go take a ride. And they go and they start to examine the wall. And I don't know what these guys are thinking he's doing, you know, but there they are with him. And they're looking at the wall and its condition. There's some places that says the wall is so bad they can't even get through. They can't even get through at all anymore. And, uh, and here he goes. And at the very end it says, the officials did not know where I had gone when I got back or what I had been doing because I had yet to tell anything to those who would do the work. That's kind of a crazy idea. But it reminds me of something that, again, this intimacy that he had with God. As Nehemiah begins to uh, go out and examine and see what the problems are, I can imagine he's still talking to God about it. I can imagine he's probably a little worried he may not have the plan right. You know, he might have not brought enough lumber. He might not understand the scope of the work that he has to do. But here he goes out there with a few guys, and he looks at the problems the wall uh, is going to present to him. Uh, it's like the same thing. 
You know somebody ought to, but it's part two. Because it's that moment whenever you say, you know someone ought to, to someone else, and they look at you and they say, maybe that's you. Maybe you should do it. And then you start to think, oh, oh, no, not me. No, 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 you misunderstand. Uh, someone else, someone better equipped, someone who, who understands what the problems are. But he's made a plan, and when he goes and he looks, he starts to see it. He starts to see the work that has to be done. And this is the, the second part of the somebody ought to. Maybe you should consider it. Do you have a plan? How would that really work? Have you gone and looked? It's a beautiful thing. I want to talk one last thing about the intimacy and relationship uh, that we see here. I heard, heard this uh, one time, and I've always been fascinated by it. And if you want to try it sometime, you can try it. Um, there was a university that did a study about how fun it was to play cards, okay? And what they did is they got people together, uh, couples, and um, they would uh, have four couples at a table, and they would play cards together. Now, the, uh, the, the, first, the first group, they had to play cards like normal, okay? Just cards. And they would afterwards say, how fun was that? And they would rate it however they rated it, scale of 1 to 10 or whatever. Well, then the second time, they took one couple aside, and they said, play footsies while you play cards. And they didn't tell the other group. And what's interesting is they played footsies under the table while they're playing cards up here. Okay. And uh, they, left the, they left the game, and they said, rate how fun was the cards. Man, the footsies people was like 10. They had the best time. The people not playing footsies, eh, it was cards. So then they did a third test, because they thought, that's so weird. Who cares about playing footsies? And they said, okay, um, first couple, play footsies. Second couple, they're going to play footsies. And then they went and they saw what the results were. And guess what? Eh, nothing special. And I see that somehow in Nehemiah here, where he holds these things close to his heart, I want to encourage you that if that's the case with you, hold them close to your heart. Because what Nehemiah waits for, and what we should be waiting for, is not our moment, not our plan, but God's moment and God's plan. We can have a plan, we can be ready to go, but hold them in your heart. Let this be part of your little intimacy with God. I can tell your life will be more joyful if you have that. So you're saying, are you saying I should play footsies with God under the table? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because something else is going on in your life. Something that's bigger than those around you can see. That's what we have for today. The story of Nehemiah. He's there. The work's at hand. And uh, he's been waiting for God to say go for four months. And yet, in that place, he's still treasuring it, you know, very close to his heart. Now, you might have, you know, no idea what we're talking about, what I'm talking about. And that's probably reasonable at this point. But... The God of all creation is trying to play footsies with you. I believe that. What we see here in this life, this, this game we play, isn't the real game at all. And he's trying to lull you in. He's trying to 
persuade you in to loving, persuade you in to responding, and persuade you into being uh, part of his uh, part of his work, part of his people. And so, if you don't if you don't understand the intimacy involved there, I would encourage you to pray about it. Just pray about it, you know. If you don't have that, pray. If you're confused, pray. If you're stuck, pray. Because only there, when we're listening to the living God, do we find any hope or any answers. Jesus came for this very reason. He came to give us life. He came to save us from ourselves. And he came to offer us a future. And so if you don't understand that about Jesus, you're kind of missing everything. You know, like we talked about what we did yesterday. See, see, see what I'm saying? Did you see the strawberries yesterday? That was the game. But if you see what God's doing in the community, God's doing under the table, that's where the real pleasure is. So let me encourage you. If we said nothing else, let's use Nehemiah's example of relationship today. Let's be intimate with God. Let's don't be oblivious, though, when God gives us something to do. Let's make a plan while we wait. But let's wait for God.